Please remain standing in honor of uh, the reading of the word of the Lord. Turn with me to um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Um, If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one in the seat back pocket in front of you. And in that Bible, it'll be page 573. Um, Also, if you do not have a Bible in your home, please take one of those as our gift to you. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, and many of us have experienced the life-changing power of the gospel. Lord, many of us have had our lives dramatically altered. We were on a path that the Bible is very clear leads to destruction. And we heard the gospel and faith came by hearing your word and, and, and it, it, it gave birth to belief in us. And we put our trust in you at your free invitation to trust you. And Lord, because of that, our lives have been forever changed and we have been made brand new just as Teresa testified today that that the old Mark the old Dave the old Paul they're gone they're, they don't exist anymore and a new better creation has taken its place if any man is in Christ he's a new creation old things are passed away and behold everything everything becomes new And so we thank you this morning. God, we we pause and we thank you for the power of your gospel. And Lord, we ask you now that you would give us hearing ears to hear what you would say to us. For we understand that the gospel is not just some initiatory right to get us into the church. God, the, the gospel is our daily bread. 
It is the air that we breathe. And so God, let us breathe deeply this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Paul, for your help. Um, So last week we began this new series on the letters of the Apostle Paul to the Thessalonians. And instead of cracking open the book of 1 Thessalonians last week, we actually started in Acts 17. And, And there we read this story of how Paul and Silas and Timothy, they came to the city of Thessalonica, which is in Macedonia, and that's in northern modern day Greece. Um, after having been in their synagogue for three uh, consecutive Sabbath days, they were proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah, that everything that the Old Testament writers had prophesied and, and pointed to had now come to pass in the form of Jesus. And, at the resp- and in response, rather, to their preaching, many Jews, many Gentiles, repented and believed in the gospel. And what this, the effect that this had is, is that it caused jealousy, rampant jealousy among the Jews. And, and in response to that, they incited a riot in the city. And for their safety, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they fled by night to the neighboring city of Berea. Now in Berea, Paul picked up right where he left off. He went into the synagogue. He began to preach. Many people believed, Jews as well as Greek, men as well as women. They heard the gospel. They repented. They believed. But when the Thessalonian Jews from just over there in Thessalonica, only about 45 miles away, they heard that Paul had moved to Berea. Guess what they did? They came and they agitated the crowds that were there also. They stirred up another, uh, uh, you know, just riot and, and the, the same, same song, second verse. So the brothers in Berea did the same thing that the brothers in Thessalonica did. They, they sent Paul off again. How would you like to be so effective in your gospel proclamation that everywhere you went, civil unrest ensued? How, how cool would that be? How would you like to routinely go to cities, preach the gospel, only to have to be whisked out in the dead of night for your own safety. Well, so uh, Timothy and Silas, they stayed behind in Macedonia. They continued to establish churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, while Paul went south by sea to Athens and eventually to Corinth um, in the province of Achaia, and he was about 355 miles away. And that's important because Paul stayed in Corinth about a year and a half, and he preached, and he made disciples, and he planted a church. But he was also anxiously awaiting the return of Timothy and Silas to report on the spiritual health of those Macedonian, those brand new Macedonian Christians. Now think about that. 355 miles away, they can't pick up a telephone, they can't send an email or even a fax. This was a time when there was no electronic communication and and all mail, all messages was carried over mountains, through forests, sometimes over sea, by foot. And Paul had to wait for months for any word of how things were going. And so I imagine that he... He was sweating and wondering and anxious. He wondered whether the persecution that he had left the Thessalonian church with had just been too much for those infants in Christ. And and perhaps the entire mission had been a complete and utter failure. But good news, Silas and Timothy eventually found Paul in Corinth and they brought him the report that he had longed to hear 
the Macedonian churches were thriving. Let me tell you a little secret about being a Christian. Persecution generally does not have the effect of destroying churches. Generally. Usually, when the, when the heat gets turned up, churches and individual believers get stronger in their faith. Why? Because it weeds out the people who were never strong and never committed and never really transformed by the gospel in the first place. So these churches were thriving, even though they were severely persecuted. And this news filled Paul's heart with joy, and he wrote the letters to the Thessalonians from Corinth. And what he was doing in these letters is answering the questions that they had relayed through Timothy and Silas, and he was expressing their love for them. And we see a good kind of summary of this in, in the third chapter of 1 Thessalonians, verse 6. It says, But now that Timothy has come to us, from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you for this reason brothers in all our distress and all our affliction we've been comforted about you through your faith now listen to this for now we live if you are standing fast in the lord Paul was so excited to hear that that what he the work he had planted was still thriving because they had clung to their faith now, this celebratory note is reflected even into the, in the way that Paul begins his first letter to the church. After his customary greeting, he always starts his letters the same way. He wishes the church grace and peace. Grace, of course, speaking of our, of our standing with God and, and peace, meaning that the, the, the hostility between us and God has come to an end. Paul thanks God for them, and he tells them how he's praying for them and remembering them. And then in verse 3, he says, I'm remembering before our God and Father, listen to these phrases, your work of love, I'm sorry, your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of your hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, where have we seen those three words together before, faith, hope, and love? Well, if you'll recall... In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, heck, if you've ever been to a wedding, you've heard these words more than likely. They're, they're at the very end of the chapter 13. We call it the love chapter, and it says this. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. And these aren't the only places where Paul uses these three words together to encourage believers. He also does it in Romans. He does it in 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, as well as once more in 1 Thessalonians. But here, he modifies these virtues. He modifies them, calling them a work of faith, a labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. To the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 13, he gives the prominent place to love. These three abide, faith, hope, and love, greatest is love. But here, he gives it to hope. He lists them as faith, uh, yeah, faith love, and hope. In our study of these Two books that we're going to be in for the next several weeks is going to help us to understand why he places such an emphasis on hope. We'll get to that later. But let's talk about this list. Paul speaks of their work of faith. Now, this is interesting. And if you've been immersed in the gospel for very long, this might raise somewhat of a red flag for you. Because most of us view faith and works as polar opposite concepts. We know from the preaching of the gospel that the gospel frees us from working to be righteous. You cannot work to be righteous. Yeah, that was your cue, right? 
You can't work to be righteous. You can be, you can be Mr. Rogers and you're not righteous enough to please a holy God. You cannot work to be righteous. The Bible says that by our faith in Christ, outside of ourselves, we've been made righteous by God apart from our works. So when Paul talks about a work of faith, what does he mean? He is not saying, listen to me, he's not saying that the Thessalonians are working for their salvation or that they're counted among God's elect because they worked for it. On the the other hand, what he is saying is that because they were the work of God, the, the, the elect of God, they had a faith that worked. Do you have a faith that works this morning? James tells us that faith without works is what? He says faith without works is dead. James is telling us that any claim to having saving faith that's genuine will be evidenced by a life of good works. The Thessalonians showed that the gospel had really transformed them by denying themselves and serving their Savior with good deeds. Next, Paul talks about their labor of love. Man, I loved pulling this apart. This is so cool. You'll recall that Jesus said that the two greatest commandments, a man came up to him and said, what's the greatest commandment? He said uh, that the first greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he said the second commandment is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And then later in 1 John, the Apostle John combines those two when he says this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. The gospel, though, in Thessalonica, the gospel had so changed that people that Paul actually uses this really cool Greek word, kapos. And what he's doing there, he's using kapos, which means labor. He's using it to describe their love. He says, your love is like you're working at it, you're laboring. And this, this word kapos is different than just labor, like you go to work in the morning. It means to work hard with trouble and toil and great weariness. It is how this church loved God and how they loved others. Has the gospel, listen to me, ask yourself, the greatest thing we can ever do when we're listening to the gospel preached is to reflect on, uh, on what it's saying to us, what the Lord would have us hear. So I want you to do that right now. Ask yourself this question. Has the gospel so changed your life that you love God and everyone else, your friends and your enemies, to the point where it costs? Do you love God? Do you love people so much Friends and enemies to the point where it hurts. Surely, surely this is part of what it means to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, holding nothing back, leaving nothing on the table. My prayer for us this morning is that God would make it so in all of our lives, just like he did in the lives of the Thessalonians. That he would make us people who are so marked by a radical radical love for both God and others that it, it literally wears us out that we're loving people so much. Last, Paul talks about the steadfastness of the hope that they had in Christ Jesus. Since Paul's short visit, as I mentioned earlier, the Thessalonians had been subject 
to severe persecution, unlike any of us have ever experienced and probably will ever experience on the basis of our faith. Severe persecution. We can only imagine, as, as Paul disappeared from their circle there, that what, the, that what that might have made them think. They, they surely had moments where they wondered if this new declaration of faith in Jesus was all worth it. But Paul is saying just the opposite. He's saying that the gospel had given them such a confident assurance that even in perilous times, they were all standing firm. See, gospel hope, that word hope can kind of throw us for a loop sometimes. Gospel hope isn't the same kind of hope as when we say we hope we win the lottery. Or we hope we win the heart of that special someone. Gospel hope is our present comfort experienced because of a certain future reality. That means that because the future is certain, even if my present circumstances aren't certain, because the future is certain, man, I am at peace, I am strong, I have comfort because I believe that the future is certain and assured. I take comfort in the fact that one day, as Pastor David read this morning, I take comfort in the fact that one day I am going to be perfectly free from sin. Man, I fight it like a monster some days, and it is not going to happen at some point. It's going to be completely removed from me. No more sin. No more temptation. No more, no more falling prey to my own wicked desires. I'm going to be perfectly free from sickness. I know that many of you here today, like myself, you deal with things, chronic things, and then they're a constant struggle. But the day is coming. The day is coming when that's going to be all gone. It's going to be gone. And guess what? A day is coming when I won't put one more loved one in the ground. I won't, I won't have to go to, to preach one more funeral or attend one more funeral. It's all going to be over. All sin, sickness, death, and everything else you can imagine. Anything that, is, that hurts, as the Bible says, it's going to be gone. No matter my present circumstances, my future is secure because of Jesus. It's secure because of Jesus. I have hope. And I'm not hoping that happen, happens. My hope gives me an assured confidence that it is going to happen. Romans 15, 13 describes this concept really well. It says, may the God of hope. Don't you love that God's called that? Man, when you're in the middle of all hell breaking loose in your life, remind yourself that God is the God of hope. He's the God of hope. He's not the God of your destruction. He's the God of hope if you put your trust in him. So may the God of hope fill you with all joy and all peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Man, I want that for you. I want you to abound in hope. Uh, and listen, I, I, this isn't some, some Pollyanna message. There are some of you that are going through literally hellacious Terrible, awful things, but I want you to abound in hope because, because there's nothing else sure that you can place your trust in in this life except for Jesus. Every other thing, every relationship, every resource, everything is going to fail you, but Jesus will never fail you. 
Hebrews says, we even sang it at one of the lines in one of our songs today. Hebrews says that our hope is an anchor for our soul. Let me ask you point blank this morning. Are you anchored or are you adrift? Are you anchored to the rock that Jesus is or are you just tossed on the sea of of this life and this world and the troubles that it brings? In Romans, Paul says that the gospel, the message of Jesus, how he lived, how he died, how he rose again, how he ascended to the Father and is reigning and has sent the Holy Spirit to, to be with us, to comfort us, to, to strengthen us, to convict us. All that's the gospel. And the Bible says that the gospel is the power of God that works salvation in everyone who believes it. Power as the gospel is described there, power, listen to this, this profound thought, power is never subtle. Think about that. You, you never have to question if a person or a tool or anything has power. You know, if, I, if I'm cutting some wood at my house and I plug in my skill saw and I press the trigger and nothing's happening, guess what? I'm pretty sure it, it uh, doesn't have power for some reason. Probably I just forgot to plug it in. But if I take that same plugged-in skill saw and I lay my hand in front of it, I'm going to find out how powerful it is real quick, aren't I? Aren't I? Power is never subtle. When something has power, it's evident. What Paul is celebrating in this first chapter of First Thessalonians is that the, there's evidence that the power of God is on display as this church has believed that Jesus died and rose again. Evidence of this power makes him say this. I love this. For we know... We are confident based on the evidence. We know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you. What was Paul seeing in the Thessalonians that led him to this conclusion? First, the gospel's power was revealed in the effectiveness with which it was proclaimed. And by that, I mean the presence of the Holy Spirit's work sent in the conviction that led to their repentance. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 5 says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul emphasizes that the gospel proclaimed was not just another philosophy presented for their consideration. They had plenty of those in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, rather. They They had plenty of philosophies that were bandied about by the Greeks and the Romans and the pagans, and everybody had a thought. But he's saying this is over and above all of that. It's not just something for your consideration, but rather it is a universally relevant declaration of pardon leading to peace with God for everyone who believes. That's the power of the gospel. It matters to everybody, and it's directed at everybody. Red and yellow, black and white, Rich or poor, doesn't matter. The gospel is for you. It's relevant to you in ways that other things just are not. He says that it was effective because of the working of the Holy Spirit. Now listen to me. This is important. What makes a message, whether it's preached one-on-one to two friends or from a pulpit like this, what makes a message powerful? I'm here to tell you, there are many preachers who can play on your emotions. There are many who can make you weep or commit to a religious ideal, but there has never, ever, ever been a preacher good enough to truly convict a lost person of their depravity and persuade them to believe in Jesus. It's never happened, not once in the history of the gospel. It's never happened. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. 
Genuine faith, genuine repentance is always evidence of the Holy Spirit's power at work in someone's heart. But Paul also says that the very integrity of those who preach the gospel confirmed the gospel's power. He says this, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word with much, in much affliction, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. First, Paul says that their selfless service to this church was not an opportunity for greedy gain. But they did what they did when they, uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy came to Thess- Thessalonica. They did it for the sake of the Thessalonians, for the church's benefit. Thessalonica was filled from one end to the other with cults and temples that operated for the sole purpose of taking people's money or of exercising control over them. In describing these kind of people, which are still around in abundance today, Peter says this, They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts that are trained in greed. They are accursed children. But Paul was able to point to their ministry as having such integrity that the people became imitators of the preachers and of the Lord in their willingness to endure through persecution and to experience great joy all in the middle of it. When you share the gospel, and I hope you do, I really hope you do, when you share the gospel, let me ask you this question, is it backed up by a life that proves the truth of it? When people on the outside hear what you say and they observe your life, what you do, do they want to imitate your example or do they want to avoid your destructive path at all costs? I'm not talking here about moral perfection and that you can't ever fail because you're some PR agent for God. No, I'm talking about just the opposite. When you do fail, do they witness a life of constant humility and constant repentance that adorns and confirms the gospel we preach? The gospel's power was also verified. It was evident as as it made the Thessalonians an influential people. Verse 7 says, So that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. Paul says that they so fully embraced the message of the cross, the message of Jesus, that they became a prime example to all the other believers in the region of how Christianity is done. Everyone was talking about this barely planted, heavily persecuted church that thoroughly repented and was serving God faithfully. Paul writes that they became an example, that the word sounded forth from them, that their faith has gone forth everywhere. If, if you're somebody who claims that you've truly put your trust in Christ, what are people really saying about the testimony and the impact of your life? Is the transformation that's taking place in you daily so winsome that both believers and unbelievers alike are, are drawn to you, looking to you as an example of what Jesus is like? Paul says that all these people in other places report concerning us the kind of reception that we had among you. What he's talking about is the reception of the gospel message that he preached. So what, what effect did the gospel have on the Thessalonians? The verse 9 says, you turn to God from idols. 
to serve the living God, the living and true God, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul reports that they turned from their idols. John Calvin famously said, the human mind is, so to speak, a perpetual forge of idols. In other words, our hearts are are factories of idols, just spits out one right after the other. You destroy one, another one comes up. Genuine repentance always requires, listen to me, if you want to know if you truly repented and put your trust in Christ, listen to me carefully. Genuine repentance always requires the abandonment of things that give you purpose, the the things that give you meaning, the things that give you satisfaction outside of Christ. You must abandon those things. And if you haven't done that, you have not truly repented. But since we have within us this perpetual forge of idols, this constant spitting out of a new idol, this means that our repentance must also be perpetual, always, constant. Our posture as believers in Christ should always be one of repentance. Martin Luther said this. I love this quote. He said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. One-time repentance isn't just how we become believers. Daily, and I would dare say even constant repentance, is how we prove that we are believers. This is how the Thessalonians responded to the gospel, and in so doing, they were revealing its power. How did that reveal its power? Because if, if you have a new idol with every thought of your heart, and you're constantly casting those down and repenting and turning towards God, if you're doing that, you're saying to yourself, to those who love you, and to all the world, you're saying, hey, no matter how important this thing is, there's something more important, and that's Jesus. But before they turn from idols, don't miss this point. It says they turn to God from idols. It's never enough to try to clean up your life by ridding ridding it of some troublesome immoralities or idols, especially if you have no intention of surrendering your life to God. We put away idols so that God can become our only object of worship. It won't accomplish anything if if you turn from idols without turning to God. The Galatians, let me give you an example of this. The Galatians were under the false impression. It was the whole subject of Paul's book to them. They were, they were under this false impression that becoming believers meant that they have to be circumcised just like the Jews in order to please God. But listen to what Paul said. He said, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He's saying that in another place, that circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't mean anything, has no bearing on anything. But he's saying if you try to, to substitute turning to God, putting your hope in God with circumcision, you will literally do just the opposite and you'll make Christ mean absolutely nothing to you. It's the same thing with all the things we try to put away or, or initiate in our lives to try to make God happy with this. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Only putting our trust in Christ. And then as we have turned to God, ridding ourselves of the things that aren't pleasing to him, Paul reminded them that it was faith in what Christ had done for them that made them saved. It wasn't a single thing that they could do for him. We first put our hope and trust in God alone, and as we do, we rid ourselves of idols through repentance. 
so that we can please the one we love and have him permeate more and more of our thoughts, more of our desires, more of our actions. And lastly, the Thessalonians demonstrated the power of the gospel by their hope. They were waiting, Paul says, for the return of God's Son from heaven so that he would complete their redemption and fill them with joy. The Jesus, I want you to understand why this is so important. This Jesus that they were waiting for was not some figment of their imagination. The Jesus that they were waiting for to return was the Christ of the Bible who Paul describes in this passage as having been risen from the dead. But he also says that he's the one who's delivered us from the wrath of God eternally. We're not coming, we're not uh, waiting for Jesus to come and, and settle the scores with us. We're waiting for him to just come and make us more like him and, and establish us in our, in our new uh, uh, reality that I talked about earlier. When you become a believer, why does this matter, this looking for, to heaven for the return of Christ? Because when you become a believer, your priorities dramatically shift. You're no longer concerned with building something here that's just going to soon pass away. Rather, you're waiting for something much better that's coming to you. You're not waiting for this to pass away. You're waiting for something that's going to come to you. The end of the world system with all of its hatred, its wars, its disease, the resurrection of the body, to be glorified like Christ, and the promise of eternity in His presence. Wow, what would you give for that? Reveling in His love and freed from sin and death. So how mightily did God demonstrate the power of the gospel in the lives of the Thessalonians? How powerfully is the gospel's effect demonstrated in you? As I said earlier, just take a minute today and honestly assess yourselves. I've quoted all the time, 2 Corinthians says that we should examine ourselves to see whether we are, are in the faith. Assess yourself this morning. For the sake of Jesus' holy name, let's evaluate whether the light of the gospel has been dimmed through our apathy, through our idolatry, through our compromise, through our unforgiveness, whatever it is. And let's repent. Let me invite you to the same repentance that I'm engaging in. Let's repent and ask God to restore the mighty working of his gospel within us. So just take a minute and just consider that. Consider what the Lord might be wanting to speak to you about where you're at and what what is is keeping the, the, the power of the gospel. Let me just put it to you in simple terms. Is the gospel plugged in in your life? Is the gospel plugged in? Or is it just something that means a lot on Sunday as you worship, as you listen to the word, as you come to this place and hang out with some people you like? Or is the gospel transforming you every day? Is it renewing your mind? Is, are your thoughts changing? Are your, are your actions and your habits changing? Is, is, is your heart growing in love for Christ? Or is Jesus just an accessory like a purse or a necklace or a wallet? Is Jesus becoming everything to you? Some of you are probably here I usually assume there's some that fall into one of a few categories. Maybe one, you've been in church all your life. 
If you don't mind me saying this, like Teresa, and you thought you understood what you had done or what you believed, and maybe even through some of the things I've said this morning, you realize, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Can I tell you something? That's not a bad thing to figure out. It's not a bad thing to figure out at all. It's a good thing. It could lead to life. How great would that be? So ask yourself that. Maybe you're here and you've never given Jesus a second thought and something's happening in your heart right now and, and you're, you're considering whether this is something that you should look more deeply into. And if you don't mind my vote, I say yes. I say yes. No one's asking you to join a church or anything. Just I, I'm just encouraging you to ask the questions. Find myself, find Pastor Dave, find Daryl, find some one of us. Just ask some questions. See if there's something that you need to do. And there's some of you that have just drifted from God and you, and you know it and you're, you're just not connected uh, to, to the life that the gospel once brought you, the belief that the gospel once brought you. I'm just encouraging you to come on home. You know what? God never removed your plate from the table. You're still welcome. You're still welcome. Come on back. Come on back. Dinner's waiting. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's powerful. I thank you that it never returns to you void. And Lord, I thank you that you are, um, God, just, just a gracious God who has given us the gospel of your son, Jesus. Paul said this is a true statement, a true saying, that Jesus Christ died for sinners. He said, I'm the, I'm the worst. Lord, we all feel that way. So, Lord, we thank you for your death. We thank you for your resurrection. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, let the gospel, God, come alive to us and transform us and change us and help us to, to just put our trust in you, Lord God, and be transformed daily by the renewing of our minds to greater and deeper belief in you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to ask our communion workers to come. And one of the great ways, a lot of the theme of this message, obviously, has been repentance. And one of the great things that we have every week is a is a set-up, uh, you know, ready-made opportunity for us to repent and to remember Jesus. Repentance... I've said this before, but there's always people that probably didn't hear it, so I'm going to say it multiple times now and in the future. But um, repentance, when I was a kid, we always thought that it was, or I always thought that it was about groveling, like, you know, just coming to God and the words of some of the old hymns, just telling him how much of a worm I was. And, and I've learned that God already knows how much of a worm I am, and so he doesn't need me to tell him that. So repentance is just acknowledging that I'm you know, I'm, I, I am sinful and I'm broken and saying, okay, God, but I recognize that you have an offer of life. God's, God's repentance doesn't mean that you're bowing under the weight of his falling gavel. What it means is that you're saying, okay, I hear what you're offering and I accept it. And so, and that, what I want you to hear me say this morning is that's not just for people who've never trusted Christ. Your life, as Martin Luther said, should be one of constant, unending repentance. And so, for those of you who are believers, I want you to come to the table this morning. 
and just return to Christ, however that looks in your own personal heart. You know where you've drifted. You know where you're, you've put your trust and faith in other things, whether it's money or your position or, or you know, some uh, preferred future that you're looking forward to that isn't part of God's preferred future for you necessarily. And, and I just want to invite you to come and repent. And if you haven't repented, if you haven't ever put your trust in Christ, then don't come this morning to the table. This wouldn't mean anything to you. It would just be a snack and not a, a powerful statement of the grace of, of God that's at work in your life because the grace of God isn't at work in your life yet. But if you'd like to put your trust in Christ, let us know. We'd love to pray for you and welcome you to the table. So bless you. Let's pray and um, read our scripture and we'll, uh, we'll come to the table. Paul said this. He said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This, blood is the, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So this morning I'm using the word remember, telling you to remember to repent and come back to Jesus and, 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 and let the gospel's power come back alive in you. Lord, we thank you for your gospel. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your power. And Lord, I pray right now that you would just call us all to repentance, to new life. We thank you, God, for your goodness, your mercy, your love. We thank you for um, just the new life that's available in you. We thank you that, that you love the world so much that you gave your only son that whoever believes in you, just believes in you, would not perish, would not die, but have everlasting life. Thank you for this, Jesus. Thank you for the reminder that you're still saving lives today in this baptism tank. We love you, Lord Jesus. Bless your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.